This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Turner from the Supercomputing Center at the University of Edinburgh. Andrew, you have a title of project manager, but when I look deeper, I see HPC expertise, user support, consulting, teaching, and several projects. Can you give us a gist of who you are and what you do? Yep, sure. So my job title is not helpful at all. That's just a university administrative thing that they have to use job titles and I guess is a symptom of the fact that the university doesn't really understand what RSEs are so they try and hang a label off you that doesn't really match. In terms of what I do, it's mostly based around helping researchers use high performance computing facilities, supercomputing facilities and getting the most out of that for their research. And that's what my focus is really, I think, more than anything else. So I have a role in user support, people sending questions about the supercomputers we run, um, and I help sort them out with uh, technical support. I write and deliver training to help them make better use of the facilities. I also help design the way the facilities work to make them as good as possible. Try and understand what the researchers want from the service and translate that into some into technical specifications and technical ideas that we can implement as service providers. So I think yeah, my key interest has always been that translation step of translating what the researchers want into the technical implementation of what we actually do and translating their questions into something that we can help them out in so they can actually use it to get on with their research. What you just described that being able to translate between, okay, this is a research question and then what that means technically, that requires a lot of people skills, but it also requires a lot of expertise in different areas. How did you get to the role you're in now? Can you kind of go back in time to when maybe you first got interested in research or perhaps it was programming and walk us through what that looked like? Yeah, so high school, my interest was always really in chemistry. I was really taken by chemistry, mostly probably because I had a really good chemistry teacher. I come from the northwest of England, around the Liverpool area originally, and there's a lot of um, heavy, heavy chemical industries there. And I always looked at the big pipes and sort of thought, oh, I want to work in the chemical industry. So off I went, got a, went into a first degree in chemistry. Uh, when I actually got to university, found I really wasn't actually very good at experiments at all. Naturally, deflecting that I'd do better was to start doing computational chemistry instead, where I couldn't break glassware as much. So I ended up doing that for my final year project. Uh, with a computational chemist in North Wales and that led to a PhD in computational chemistry eventually to a postdoc in computational chemistry up here in Edinburgh. Although I enjoyed the research and I was still interested in chemistry, the bit I really enjoyed was tinkering around with scripts, making programs work better, using HPC facilities and I found I was actually quite good at turning the sort of the research bit into actual bits of code that could plumb together people's research workloads and things like that. So a lot of people find the research career is quite an unstable one, certainly when you're a postdoc, you know, it's a lot of short-term contracts over here in the UK, it's not very appealing. And an opportunity came up to come and work at EPCC, the Edinburgh Power Computing Centre, in their user support team for the National Supercomputing Service contract that they just won, which was called HECTA. And I interviewed for that and got the job. And since then, I've sort of broadened out from chemistry into 
views support from all different walks of research using the HPC facility. And I really enjoy that ability to sort of have this broad overview of computational research people are doing and try and look for commonalities between them and take lessons from one area and bring it into another area and join up those areas a bit. Because when you work in a research, you're so focused in your research problem, it can be quite siloed and you don't realize what people are doing in other areas. That's hugely true. We see a lot of that at my institution as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about your center, the EPCC? In the Twitter bio that I read, and I quote, it said, our large computing power and data storage capacity is unrivaled in the UK. Can you unwrap that for us a bit? Yes, yeah, so EPCC has been around quite a long time now for an HPC center. Well, not compared to some of the big US sites, I guess, but for in the UK, we've been around for almost 30 years now. And it came out of a number of researchers in the School of Physics and the University of Edinburgh needing bigger computer resources. So they put together grants to get bigger computer resources. That led to some sort of concept of a national HPC facility or supercomputing facility and led to what was the Edinburgh Regional Computing Centre, ERCC. And out of that eventually came Edinburgh Power Computing Centre, which broadened out rather than just using the HPC for and the research they were doing in the School of Physics and offering it to other uh, academic institutions, also bringing in uh, commercial projects, working more with data and eventually leading to lots of European projects. We have quite a broad portfolio of work now, working ranging from HPC to data science, from commercial to pure academic blue skies research, up to short commercial projects that make things happen right within a week or two weeks, or to longer collaborations as well. We run our own data centre outside of Edinburgh, where it's a bit cooler, so we get a bit more free cooling, which hosts various different levels of facilities, as well as the big HPC facilities, the UK National Service is called Archer, and that's the, the replacement for that Archer 2s, due to arrive this summer, but of course that's a little bit up in the air with the current situation. We've got smaller HPC facilities, what are called Tier 2 facilities here in the UK, for smaller projects. We've got something called Cirrus that does that. We run um, HPC facilities for particle physics researchers as well. But as well as that, we've got large data facilities and data analysis facilities, and also facilities for storing secure medical data and analyzing that without exposing the confidential information there. That definitely sounds impressive and like it deserves a title that it's unrivaled in the UK. Let's say that I'm a researcher and I have a project, maybe I need a little help with writing some code and I need to run some jobs eventually. Can you walk me through how I start to interact with the system of resources and then how I might be directed to you or your team? The most of the HPC facilities or the, those sort of facilities that I work with are funded by the UK research councils covering different areas of research. Archer, for example, is funded by what we know as EPSRC, who cover engineering and physical sciences, and NERC, who cover the natural environment research. Whereas our particle physics machine, which is called Tesseract, is funded by STFC, which are the Science and Technology Facilities Council, who have responsibility for astrophysics, cosmology, and particle physics. So generally, when people want access, they're usually applying to one of these research councils for funding for their research projects, certainly the academic users anyway. They go through sort of standard peer review. If they get funded, they'll get a project set up on one of the systems. And as part of that, generally the way they come to ask for our help is through some sort of service desk. So they'll send in an email usually, some sort of question saying, I need help with this, either writing code or with getting the jobs running. 
uh, then we can help them out in various ways, either through standard email interactions, or we can call people back over video conferencing or chat, share screens and work with them that way. We also used to do, until very recently, go around and actually visit the researchers. Obviously, that's more difficult right at the moment. Yeah, definitely the world is changing very quickly given the current circumstances. Are there particular projects or maybe just one project that you're working on now that's especially important or meaningful for you? It sounds a bit petty in current times. And one of the things I really keen I really, really enjoy is benchmarking different systems and trying to understand the performance of different systems and how that relates to researchers' actual work. Not understanding sort of at the level of the processor and really understanding how the cache is used and things like that, but how applications perform, how actually the whole workflow performs rather than just the application on the HPC and how that all fits together for the researchers. So, and at the moment, it's really interesting and exciting times to be involved in benchmarking because there's a lot of new HPC technologies out there. So, for example, AMD have just produced their new processors and they're going to be part of the Archer 2 system and understanding how they perform compared to the um, Intel processors we've had up till now, how that ties into the ARM processors that are coming onto the scene. We've just got some early access to one of the Fujitsu testbed systems with the A64FX, new ARM processors, and understanding how they differ again which ones are going to be with this mix of different technologies which ones are going to be right for different researchers and how we can best build our ecosystem in the uk in particular to support researchers by providing the right processes or the right technologies at the right time for the right bit of the workflow and how we can tie them all together so benchmarking is close to my heart at the moment i'm really enjoying the diversity of different things available and trying to understand what that means for researchers I do not think that is petty at all, and I can't speak for others, but I can speak for myself to say that I also tend to have interests that are sort of technology related. So, you know, working with containers or APIs or data structures, I feel like I've seen it more the case amongst RSCs that they tend to be passionate about some niche technology like that, more so than asking, for example, a burning research question that might be afforded by uh, the technology. So. I think that's awesome. I don't think, it, I think it's petty at all. The other thing that's really interesting for me at the moment, actually, was with this diversity, got a lot of people providing HPC services in the UK and actually trying to join that whole community together so they all know what each other are doing and can benefit um, from the experiences of other people. You know, because we want to learn what other people do. They have great ideas and we want to benefit from that. And I'm sure people want to learn from the things you've had experience. Yeah, so let's talk about community a little bit. I specifically want to ask you about research software engineering, and I guess we can extend that to HPC mm -hmm. too. What does a research software engineer mean to you? Do you consider yourself one? And how are you sort of interacting with a larger community? So yes, firstly, I consider myself one. And actually, we set up the Society of Research Software Engineering here in the UK, and I'm quite involved. One of the people who was key in setting that up, a guy called Christopher Woods, who worked down in Bristol, he got an award for his services at the last conference we ran last September in Birmingham. He did a little speech about what the community meant to him. And the figure thing he said that resonated almost exactly with me was that the reason the RSD thing is so important is because it's essentially home for him and for me. And I always felt or what I was doing didn't quite fit in. I mean, I'm quite lucky. I've worked at EPCC where there's a lot of other people who are sort of RSEs, but I've never felt that role really had a, a real place in academia in the UK. And actually when this community started of RSEs and I became involved in it, it felt like coming home into the community. And it was like, here's a place that I belong. 
I think that's why it's so important to me. And that's why I've been really keen to get involved with that community and help take it forward. At the moment, I'm one of the trustees of the society. And my term's going to be up this September because um, I've done two years now. So I really wanted to push this thing to give other people who were maybe feeling isolated or like they didn't quite fit in, that they also have a home and a place that they can feel like they belong in, in terms of a community. That really hits me deeply too. I didn't know when I was starting graduate school that there was this thing where you could just work on research software, but I do remember writing scripts is what I loved. And in two interviews, two prominent faculty, when I would talk to them and I tell them what I loved, they'd say, you know, you're not the kind of person that belongs in this PhD program. You don't have these burning questions. And I had to kind of hold my head high and go out in the hallway and cry afterward, but really ultimately keep telling myself that no, there has to be a place for someone like myself. And I think what you said really resonates with me as well, because the U.S. is a little bit behind the U.K. in terms of bringing together this national organization, but we're working on it. And in the past year and a half that it's really been picking up, that is my prime motivation, that it is creating this community for people that are so important and badly needed by the research community, but there's not awareness or a place for them yet. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the amazing things I saw when we started out here in the UK was it started out with this thing and this idea. And then there were so many people put their hand up and said, that's me, that you didn't know even existed, even within your own institution. You know, there are lots of people who are just working in a research group as a single person. You know, they're not part of some sort of larger grouping of research software engineers, whether they were called that or not, that were just plugging away in these research groups. And then when this thing came along, they found somewhere where they could put their hand up and be part of that community. The first conference I went to, the first RSE conference, was just the most amazing experience because it was just full of people who were really keen to make the community work, really friendly. That was a great experience. So how would you like to see the world change in the next decade with respect to career paths or knowledge about either HPC or research software engineering? I think one of the things I've been trying to consistently say to people over the past year or so, because there was this big explosion in the UK of research software engineering, everybody's super keen and there's a big community, lots of people are it's like, well, yes, that's great, but to get the career paths and to get this recognized as a real career that people can take and there's the opportunities there for them, this is a project that's not going to take five years, it's not going to take 10 years, it's going to take 20, it's going to take more years than that, because that's the time scale that academia operates on, you know, turning around universities and how they understand the people that work for them and the people that make research work, it's like turning the Titanic, it's a huge thing and it's going to take a long time, so it's great to have the enthusiasm and I love the fact that everybody's enthusiastic and keen, but they also have to be aware that you've got to be in for the long haul. This is going to be something that I feel like I'm going to be pushing and fighting for until I retire at some point, and I don't expect it to be complete by then. So within 10 years, I'd hope that at least there are some universities out there that understand fundamentally the interverse structure that RSEs are a critical part of the research infrastructure. The same way technicians, librarians, information services staff, all those sort of people are built in. And it's just a fundamental part of how the university operates. I think that's a reasonable goal for 10 years is to at least have some exemplar institutions where that's possible. You're touching on something that I think is really important and I've noticed as well. And that is that one of the hardest aspects of working in this space isn't designing algorithms or writing code, but it's the people. 
So I'm interested because you have this unique role where you're between working as a manager, but you're also writing code. You're wearing kind of both hats of a manager and sort of a, a programmer. What have you found to be the greatest challenges with managing people? And how has being a manager helped you to be a better research software engineer? I think the challenge for me with dealing with people is naturally I'm, I'm quite a shy person. I find it very tiring being with people all the time. The best thing working with the people and managing people is they're inspiring and you learn lots from them. They're full of good ideas. They're keen and make me a better person by what they share. And actually, it makes me realize that by going out and sharing with them, it makes me better too. But in terms of dealing with people's challenges, I'm naturally, I guess, also a person who will happily take on tasks actually to my own detriment. I'll, I'll take on too many things at once because I'm just interested in lots of things. And sometimes I find it frustrating where you occasionally manage people who are very different from you and very focused on that one task and don't want to get deviated from it and don't want to take on the other tasks. And I'm always a bit like, well, why do you want to take on this new and interesting and exciting task? And they're like, well, I want to do this one thing well first before I get onto that. And so understanding different people's different personalities and not and being able to put myself in other people's shoes is probably the most challenging thing. But it's a useful skill to learn, right? Because particularly as a research software engineer, I've usually been pretty good at putting myself in the shoes of researchers, but actually it makes you question a bit more of the assumptions you're making about what's driving them and what they want to achieve from the project and what they want to do. And actually makes you better asking them for that input so you understand what they want better rather than just diving in and doing what you think the right thing to do is before you've actually understood what they need. Yeah, those are really good points. And sort of to summarize, it sounds like a skill important to learn is to be able to empathize, not just with someone's sort of emotional state, but also with their needs and incentives. And then obviously clear communication. And then the hardest one I, I personally think is being able to, even when something's really exciting, being able to say no. Yeah, I don't think I've learned that one yet. Okay, so we're coming up on time and I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to ask just a few more questions. You mentioned in your bio that you enjoy growing your own vegetables. I am a big fan of eating vegetables and it's something that I've always thought about. I'm curious to know, how do you go about doing that? What happens between different seasons? And is it really possible for an individual or family to grow a supply that can actually sustain them? To grow a supply that would sustain them, you'd need quite more land than we have, right? Because we just grow stuff in our garden and in our greenhouse out the back. We're lucky enough to have space in our garden to grow and the kids enjoy getting involved with that. But to grow enough out to actually sustain us or to provide the majority of our vegetables we want to eat, we'd probably need an allotment of some sort, so a bigger patch of land to grow on. In terms of growing the different seasons, actually, the biggest thing I've learned from where I picked up from my dad, my dad used to have an allotment and grew loads of vegetables for us when we were a kid. It was part of our everyday life when we were young, and I wanted it to be part of my kids' life, I think, as well. In terms of actually what grows, the biggest thing is learning what suits the climate you're in. And actually, that's not the macro climate, as in I live in Scotland, it's a bit cold, quite a wet, windy quite a lot. It's actually the microclimate and the soils you've got within where you're growing your vegetables, which is very different, even moving from on the same street, one end of the street to the, to the other end of the street. You know, it can be very different. The soil can change a lot. The house at one end might have a south-facing garden, the one at the other end might have a north-facing garden, they might have more shelter from trees to stop the wind. And you just have to really try growing lots of things and to find what fits in your space. 
So finally, you also mentioned that you enjoy caving, and I don't have any memory of ever actually being in a cave, so I'm interested to ask you about that. Can you tell us about caving and if you've ever discovered Batman? <laughs> Definitely not discovered Batman. Not seen much life down in caves, actually, at all. Caving was a thing I started at university when I was an undergraduate. It was something I'd always wanted to try from when I was a kid. I can't remember why. So we got to always wanted to try and I got involved with the caving club there and just loved it. It is a totally different experience from anything else in the world. Uh, the closest thing I can think of to it is if you've ever been up mountains and done the sort of scrambling mountains where you sort of climb up rocks but without a rope. Caving's a bit like that but underground but it's a bit more full body because you'll sometimes be squeezing through little gaps and crawling and all those sort of things. And it's just a really different activity. It's a full body physical activity. So you're using all bits of your body to move out, which is interesting in itself uh, because it's dark. So you don't know how high up you are. So you can go off big drops without feeling too scared. Um, oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so there could be like a huge cavernous hole down to the eye of Sauron. But if you can't see it, it's not really there. <laughs> it's not really there, right? All you can see is the limit of what your light shows. The people who are been down caves don't appreciate how fundamentally dark it is down the cave when you switch all the lights off you think you know dark until you've been down the cave and switched all the lights off there's just no sunlight there's no life there's no plants there's no anything unless it gets washed in by water or something like that it makes you live in the now i know there's a lot of stuff now about mindfulness and being able to live in the moment so when you're caving you're totally focused you know you're not worried about what's happening tomorrow what you're having for your dinner you're just doing that thing at that moment getting past that obstacle at that moment and they're so beautiful there's not many places left in the uk that i could go to that have only been seen by hundreds of people some caves you can go down where you can go to places actually where nobody's been before i'm not a cave explorer so i don't do that side of things i'm more of a sport caver but you still quite often end up in places you know that not many people have seen which is quite hard in the uk where every mountain has been visited by millions of people that sort of thing which is quite nice as well I've never thought about those two points, how our choice of activities or exercise can influence our emotional or spiritual or generally our mental health. If someone told me caving, I'd think hardcore equipment and climbing and darkness, but I wouldn't think of mindfulness and calm and having an experience that would really let me to live in the moment. It makes me kind of want to think more about the activities that I do. I, I do a lot of running and hiking, but nothing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. nothing that gets me in really quiet, calm state. The other thing about caving is it's never a solo activity as well. You go down with people you trust and you all work together. It's really very, you start to function as a very efficient team. You all know each other's abilities, your strengths and weaknesses, and you're all able to support each other in the right way at the right time. You end up with this sort of well-designed relationship. You all meet each other's needs at the right times to get through the cave and to, to enjoy the activity, which is quite special as well. Yeah, it's like you have an understanding of, of one another without needing to actually say a word. You're communicating yeah, yeah. through other things other than actually speaking. Andrew, thank you so much for being on RSC Stories today. It was really wonderful to talk to you about your work and your team. And I'm really glad that we touched on some of the cultural impacts and emotional impacts that these communities are bringing, because I think that those points are really important. And it was also really cool to hear about caving and about growing vegetables, both of things that I don't have much experience in. Thanks for coming on the show, and I, I wish you the best, and I think we'll get through this, this hard time that we're going through. 
thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's been really interesting to talk, talking to you and doing something a bit different from the usual day to day. And I hope you stay well throughout the current situation. We'll see each other on the other side at some point, maybe in, over in the US or something. It's a deal. It's a deal. <laughs>